0: customers know what they want to change about your product which is great information but they don't know the products they're going to want in the future and that's the the out-of-the-box thinking that you have to have and um, the longer i've been in this business the more i i can i think out of the box because i've seen so many things change that i never thought would have been possible so now i think everything's possible
1: Welcome to Made in the High Country, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of Western North Carolina's entrepreneurial landscape and the people within it. I'm Samantha Wright, and on the show today, how one ASU dropout imagined what a marriage between microprocessors and cash registers could look like, and how that idea took him from $7,000 in debt to the owner of one of the most profitable companies in the high country. Prior to the 1980s, most point-of-sale interactions consisted of cash or check exchanges at clunky checkout machines that were limited to a single store's accounting information. But with the invention of the microprocessor, slowly cash registers evolved into much more complex machines that allowed point-of-sale transactions to become quicker, more accurate, more connected, and more helpful for companies trying to track their financials. One of the people who saw the potential of this was Pete Cato, and in 1989, he decided to start a company that specialized in point-of-sale transactions, utilizing electronic cash registers. He called this business ECRS, or Electronic Cash Register Software. And today, it's known as one of the most sustainable employers of the high country. They employ close to 200 employees and are known for their competitive wages, friendly work environment, and sustainable business practices. Their products are used in over 10,000 locations nationwide, and if you're ever shopping around Boone, you've likely interacted with their software and hardware at places like Earth Fair, Boone Drug, and Peabody's. The story of how ECRS came to be built has a lot to do with Pete's eagerness to be in control of his own destiny. At a young age, he saw just how fragile that control can be when his father was transferred for work with AT&T, which at the time had been broken up by the government to avoid a total monopoly over phone systems and telecommunications. This was in 1984, Pete's senior year of high school, and his family was moved from his hometown of Columbia, South Carolina to Sparta, New Jersey. Fate would have it though, that the same relocation story was occurring to another family who had a daughter in her senior year of high school as well. And this boy meets girl story is how Pete found himself following a girl to Boone, North Carolina, because it was there that his now wife wanted to go to college. Pete studied marketing at Appalachian State University, but he was so eager to get out of school and start his own business, which you'll hear about later on, that he left ASU just a few credits shy of graduating. But despite the lack of a diploma, Pete certainly left his mark on ASU as being credited as the co-founder of the ASU Entrepreneur Club in 1987.
0: I did. How'd you know that?
1: Oh, I did my research. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: I started that with a few other entrepreneurs, um, Stacy Hobson uh, was one of them, and uh, David Sprague was another, and um, there was an organization called the Association of College Entrepreneurs, and it was started out of Wichita, we got it chartered, uh, we have the first, it, ASU's had entrepreneurship uh, activity for a long time, <laughs> that's for sure. I'm inspired by a lot of the entrepreneurs that came out of the 80s and 90s out of, out of ASU um, and have started incredible businesses here in Boone. Um, yeah, such as? Know, very inspirational. Well, I mean, I saw uh, – uh, I was Joe, – um, Joe Miller started uh, Cheap Joe's Art Supplies when I was during – my, during my time in school. And I, I spent a lot of time talking to Joe. And uh, and Joe um, Junior now runs that organization. He's a great great leader, and he's running that organization. It's a national company, and I I can remember when uh, Mass General Store moved downtown, um, and you know, I saw, so I got to see the transformational aspect of entrepreneurship in a small community. You know, just got a first. I got a first, you know, I got a front seat view of it all. And, um, mm. they kind of inspired me.
1: What in your mind makes Boone such a unique place to start a business?
0: A lot of people up here that started their businesses because they wanted to cut their own, they wanted to cut their own path. And, um, and you could do that up here. Um, it also has an insulation of an insulating effect. Boone does. Um, when things are haywire, when the economies go haywire, it just seems like boom is just so much more stable uh, for your workforce and everything everything's just, just more stable. I don't think ECRS would exist if if boom didn't exist mm. um, it, it gave we we just sailed right through um all kinds of labor shortages through the years. Uh, this is like the second time when we had the dot com bust before the bus we had this we saw the same type of stress in terms of trying to get people and retain people. ECRS never had any of those problems. We've never experienced any issues hiring or retaining people.
1: Why do you think it is that ECRS has never had a problem with finding the labor and the talent that you need? Because that's not a sentiment that I hear from all business owners. A lot of them kind of say the opposite. They say, gosh, you know, I'm looking for this person or this person, and just not finding the right talent.
0: We treat everyone in the company as an individual, and I think a lot of people are attracted to that. Um, my father, when he was having to transfer a lot for at and uh, I never felt like he was treated like an individual, and that was really—I think that's always, in my reflecting back, why I even wanted to work for myself. I think more about that. It, it was so bad back in the uh, in my dad's time that when they would do layoffs, they didn't even. They didn't even look at your performance. They just kind of laid off based on a spreadsheet. <laughs> so it's, that was how. So I, I saw the extremes of it. I got a sense of what it would be like. You know what I didn't want in a company, and, and every and we still we still work every day to try to build this culture that we'd want to work at and that's the bottom line what kind of culture do you want what's the culture a place where you want to work uh i work every day so i want to work in a a nice pleasant place Um, and balance that with focusing on our customers making sure that we're serving them and and providing the technical leadership they need and uh, and then balancing all the other things that you would want in an environment um, where you work day Mm. in, day out.
1: That is such key advice right there. We hear that word company culture a lot. And what I'm hearing you say is that you created a culture at ECRS that reflected the kind of place that you would want to work for. And that sounds simple enough, but perhaps some bosses out there might take that for granted and and need to hear that lesson. Now, that's ECRS, which clearly is a successful company. I know the local area is very grateful for its existence. You've done a lot of the right things there. But let's go back in time a little and talk about the first company you started while you were in college called Simple Solutions, which was less successful by all measures, let's say, but nonetheless was a very important step in your journey to where you are today. So I think it's important to, to go back and tell that story, if you're willing, so people can sort of see where you came from to and how you got to where you are today.
0: That that uh, that company was started in the dorm room, basically. Well, I, didn't, I wasn't in a dorm room, I was in an apartment, but the same concept. Kind of uh, I was in college still. And And it was really like three of us, where we, the microprocessor was um, just starting to really take off in the business world, which is really hard to fathom. Um, Right now, we're we're covered up with microprocessors; they're everywhere, Uh, and we touch them every few minutes. And but back then, it was relatively, you know. getting pcs into people's offices was a new thing and um it was it was hard for um your typical business to to actually not only acquire the pcs but also um get them in a provide the applications that actually uh, help them run their business so i mean that like that was our concept i and I would say you know simple solutions was a uh was more about let's start a business than it was about let's have a business plan or a, a sustainable mo- business model, and um,
1: it was more so just was about early. doing something.
0: Just do just something. Do right? it. Just yeah. Do it, and um, it lacked a um, it lacked a sustainable you know business model, and which is I still find that today. I, I review. On occasionally I will review um, startups um, who are looking for investment, and um, and I, I see that pattern sometimes. And it makes me it brings back memories. <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't end well. That's for sure. Usually, well, because that,
1: that the ending of that story for you was you you were left with seven thousand dollars worth of debt, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. What, ha- hap- what happened from there? Tell me the story of uh, Kurt, Kennington, and how you met him. And
0: yeah, when I met Kurt, um, so we—I was this was when I was by myself. Um, the I took the dad and other other guys left, and I started a new business. Basically, I was selling a uh, application for POS uh, or point of sale application. The idea was to help retailers um, automate and and have inventory control. One of the customers or prospects I was looking at was a pharmacy. I think it was called Independent Pharmacy. I'm pretty sure it was Independent Pharmacy. Um, so back then, you would look up the customer's name in a phone book. <laughs> which a lot of people, <laughs> I don't, like think a lot of people don't know what a phone book is anymore. And I was looking up under independents, and I saw Independent Cash Register Dealer Association listed, which was based in Charlotte. And and I had thought of the idea of, of integrating a cash register, a traditional electronic cash register, to um, the inventory system. And I said, "What the heck? And I called that number, and um, the receptionist at, at passed me through to Kurt. Uh, Kurt, at the time, owned a cash register dealership, but he was also the secretary in tr- of the Inter- Independent Cash mm-hmm. Register Dealers Association, which was based basically out of his office, but had members all over the country. Anyway, I met with Kurt, told him what I was up to. He thought it was a great idea. I thought there was a big need for it, and we we became partners pretty much right on the spot. And um, yeah, Kurt Kurt was he was he was really uh, a neat entrepreneur, a very traditional business person um, that had built a great business from scratch and uh, had a contacts all over the country. And so we we, we started the company, um, and it's called ECRS because uh, electronic cash register software. So it's a uh, it's uh, it's a pretty old brand uh, formed uh, started in 1989 basically.
1: Was it hard convincing Kurt, this already successful business guy, to go into business with you? I mean, what what do you think he saw in this opportunity at the time?
0: Yeah, he he, uh, the, you know, I, basically after I, I I told him what I want to do, he, he thought it was great. It was a need for that, and and even you know I could see why he'd be interested in that because you know he was in his sixties. Um, didn't know a lot about micro, you know, microcomputers, didn't know much about systems. And, uh, so I could see where he would definitely, um, see the, um, the need and, um, but also the energy, I mean, the energy of any entrepreneur is when you see it, you know, you just, you, you, uh, you, you know, it. an entrepreneur can spot it and uh so yeah i think he i think he saw that and and of course i knew from his success uh, his connections that um you know i could learn so much from him and that pretty much was the exchange I mean, he literally got, i gave him 50 percent of it which i wouldn't recommend that to anyone um i don't think 50 50 is a very good arrangement uh it wasn't a problem for me and kurt but i think we just because we locked out, I mean, it's, it usually doesn't end well. Someone needs to be the the majority shareholder uh, in, in in the end. Um, but anyway, we did we did a fifty fifty percent uh, arrangement. Um, he actually loaned me uh, another the seven thousand I owed, so I could get clear. That, you know I was only twenty three years old, so uh, it was a pretty big deal for me and And then we started um we did the integration work. we had the integration done to a cash register um a very popular cash register at the time and and then we um he, he introduced me, and i just started i took off from there and um and of course, I think it was maybe ten years later uh I asked Kurt if I could buy a mountain. And he he, uh, he he had no problem. He, he sold me the shares back. He made a good return. I mean, it was a great return. Um, but he could have asked for much more, uh, and I would have paid it. Um, and um, but you know, I think he, you know, I think he he was just ready to to let me fly. <laughs>
1: One thing that's interesting about ECRS was that it was entirely self-funded. Um, do you, was that important for you after that first experience you had had that had left you in debt from your first startup failure? Yeah,
0: I think, I, you know, I believe um, everybody's motivated by different things. Um, and I've always been motivated uh you know, I, I don't know if I should even if it's a bad thing, but I've always been motivated with control, and I guess mm-hmm. debt it, to me is a form of um, of a loss of control, uh, or the potential for loss of control. So I've always yeah. been wary of it. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't use debt. Um, a lot of times, debt is much more is much better than equity, uh, selling equity. Um, yeah. But it really comes down to you if you have a sustainable business model, and so ECRS is a very efficient, uh, has a very efficient business model, which basically means it generates uh, more cash than it needs, and um, so because of that, we were able to take advantage of that um, and not not incur debt, and to also keep our capital structure as simple as it could possibly be. Um, which basically means there's only one shareholder. Um, and, right. and it just keeps us, it makes up in many cases, that combination of efficient an efficient, uh, an efficient uh, uh, self-funding system with no debt. And once one owner makes the organization very, very stable. Yeah. Um, you don't have partners arguing over, you know, I, you know, you know, over how much money should be issued out or how much, you know, dividends and things like that. And and most of the money just gets plowed back into the company, which makes the company stronger and stronger. And that's, yeah. that would, that pretty much describes what happened with our company.
1: As far as other companies go, what sorts of things do you think other startups should be considering when it comes to finding capital for their business? Like what, what's the equity landscape like out there today?
0: Now, more than ever, uh, there is so much money. Money is, I mean, the world is a flush in dollars. Um, Now, companies like ECRS, we have access to almost unlimited amounts of capital. Um, I mean, people are banging our doors down trying to get us to take money. Um, But I-
1: I Trying to get you you to take money? Oh, like lenders, like, okay. Uh,
0: not, not just lenders, but um, you know, private equity companies. Uh-huh. Um, and the money's out there. And of course I know, I just, cause I, I know a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of successful companies and I know they have a lot of money to invest. Um, you know, what's, what's scarce is a, is entrepreneurs who have a sustainable business model and they have passion um, and energy um, that's what's what's scarce, mm-hmm. and um, and that's a you know, and uh, that's a, that's not the same as um, a what you would call an unicorn investment, where you're you're literally you know going to uh, invest you know hundreds of millions of dollars in order to buy uh, and acquire customers, um, uh, you know. I don't know much about that type of financing. I know that's the, um, I think that's something a lot of entrepreneurs chase, but there's another, the other alternative is to build a sustainable business, um, not one that you're trying to sell, but one you're trying to build. And I think that's a rare thing. Mm. Um, I see a lot of entrepreneurs are just, they want to, they want the quick, the quick startup and quick sell. And, um, I just, I think that they're missing some opportunity there and, uh, and to redirect and focus more about to build something special, to build a cultural organization, to build a sustainable corporation, um, that helps all the shareholders, stakeholders, um, that's an opportunity. I think it's just, there's just a lot of opportunity out there for that.
1: Yeah. You've really built something that has roots, you know, something that's here to stay and, and that stability, especially for a small community like Boone, it's so important, you know, for you, your shareholders, the employees, the community, there's so much positive impact. So I love that because you're right. There is this really glorified vision of that, you know, fast growth, entrepreneur right out of the gate that's raised, you know, a hundred million in capital and, and all the focus is on, all right, how much more money can we bring in, bring in, bring in? And then how much can we yeah. exit? How quickly can we exit? And, and,
0: and that's and foreign to that. me. I would say that's very foreign to me, but I see it a lot, but it, to me, I don't, I can't, I don't understand it. Um, I, cause I believe, you know, I, I think that, um, I think money is a byproduct of, Running a successful organization, and um, the idea that money's your your wealth's going to come from selling an organization—that's okay if that's really what turns you on, um, and that's really it's going to bring you meaning in your life. Um, but there is an opportunity to build sustainable companies uh, where you can do quite well financially. Um, and but it, it's just a lot of work. It's a, lot, it's a, it's a long commitment. And um, some of our best companies don't really start taking off until their 10th, 15th year. Um, it takes time, but then you end up with something special.
1: When you were getting started, you know, the ECRS, it provides a very specific product to a very specific customer, yes. you know, specializing mostly in groceries, beverage, um, re- uh, retail stores. Um, do you have any advice or can you share anything about your, your early marketing strategies of, or it doesn't even have to be early, you know, what, what has led to your success of getting the message of your product in front of the right people?
0: One of our success, um, marketing or strategies was basically, um, focusing on a smaller subset and and just being the best at it. <clears throat> and then you know um, and just you know just really serve that that segment. And from there, you pick other segments that are related but maybe not the same and um so you end up reusing 90% of what you've already done for one segment you can use for another it's called vertical verticalization or mm. uh going after vertical markets um that was that's that has been huge for our company um and we still do it today
1: yeah, oh, yeah. kind of like niching down is sort of the the layman's term for that right mm. yeah Yeah. Um, But I'm wondering how you got in front of the right people early on. You know, when no one knew your name, you were a new company starting out. How did you acquire those first customers? Well, our first
0: segment was to do, was actually to serve the cash register dealers out there, provide them software Mm -hmm. that they could sell that would work with their cash register. And of course, Kurt gave us that market. Um, And from there, um, I selected um, uh, health food stores. Um, and which really I actually um, hired Otis Fleeth who was really uh, really big in the health food stores selling the health food stores and Otis helped us uh, enter that market um, so there's a pattern there. I hire people that are really locked into a market and, and we basically I work with those people to bring my product into those markets and um, so that was an early pattern and um, and a couple other things we did, I think, that were instrumental uh, was to sell direct, uh, as opposed to we started moving away from resellers and moving more and more to selling direct. Now we still work with some resellers, but they're they're very specialized, and we work so close with them they're almost. Almost feels like they're part of our company. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's
1: really interesting mm -hmm. because, you know, at first when you said you were, you're kind of got your start in that reseller business. Mm -hmm. And from the outside, it sort of seems like, oh, what a sweet, what a sweet spot, right? Like they do all the sales work. You don't have to worry about that. You just, you just deliver the product, you know. So what, what created that shift and why is that a better position to be in? That's a
0: great question. The, when we sold, the cash register dealers it was it was pretty straight it was very simple the software was very simple and didn't require a lot of training on their part and um but as we moved into selling um where we provided all the software both the point of sale the self-checkout the backroom inventory control it got so complicated that it resellers couldn't put the energy or time into it and so they weren't as successful they were they could not a lot of them could not successfully install. And again, you know, I'm a, you know I hate to say it, I'm a control freak. And the thought that the software would be used incorrectly and the customer wouldn't be happy yeah. and my brand was associated with it, it just kind of drove me to want to sell direct. And so working with folks like um, Otis and several other people, we we learned how to sell direct, even these very, very complex systems. And we've been very successful with it. I mean, that's one of the, our key key differentiators is we do sell direct. Um, and we sell everything. Software, hardware uh, comes delivered right out of the box. Um, very complex systems.
1: So moving forward with ECRS, you're in it for the long haul. You're certified evergreen. You've really created a company with roots, what are the biggest threats do you see to your company moving forward? And and how are you dealing with those?
0: The biggest threat that we have is um, we have, our company has to, we have to replace ourselves. We have to, we have to bring new products to market that either improve or ultimately, um, ultimately do away with our older products. Um, So that's really the only the only way for the company to stay around, um, because the the market is going to change. It's changed a lot since I started, but it's changing faster and faster. Um, and what we're what we what we do about that is we we do a lot of research. Uh, we do we do a lot of things that um, our customers haven't asked for, but we know they're going to want. Um, or we're going to, we know, or we have a very good feel that they're going to need. And um, I think Steve Jobs was big about that. You, your cust- A lot of times your customers know what they want to change about your product, which is great information, but they don't know the products they're going to want in the future. Mm. And that's the out of the box thinking that you have to have. And um, the longer I've been in this business, the more, I, I can I think out of the box. I've seen so many things change that I'd never thought would have been possible. So now I think everything's possible. Uh, I don't discount any any new technology and how it might impact in a big way the industry I, I'm currently serving.
1: Yeah, I love that. That's such a great illustration of the difference between that word sustainable company and a. Um, a a stuck company. You know, some people might hear a company that has a sustainable business model as kind of unchanging, right? They've got it under lock and key. They've got it figured out. They'll just keep doing the same thing over and over again and they'll survive. It's a self-driving machine, but really nothing could be further from the truth to stay a sustainable company that has to be a part of your everyday business model is Mm -hmm. looking at what changes are coming and preparing for those and adapting you can't stay stale you can't stay stuck
0: and i would you you talked about the changes that are coming i would say that even that that's one step that's one excellent level to be at that's i'd give that a b plus the a status though is making the change yeah being the change, and I think that that's the uh that's the hard part and there's risk involved um but so we literally are making systems here at in boone uh, in our labs that um basically will replace. Will basically change our business model, <laughs> wow. change our cash cow products. In other words, you don't even need to, uh, you know, it would eliminate the need for the, the some of the things that we currently sell our customers that are very important to our uh, revenue. Um,
1: Is that scary?
0: It's not scary because it's just it's just reality, and you just yeah. have to deal with it. And I think the you you touched on it that the idea that you there's a lot of companies that have have it all bolted down and it's just producing great a company's producing great revenues, everything hunky-dory and nobody's doing anything about wanting to change it. At least they, they don't want to change it at all. I mean, and and that you see that all the time. Like you, with our last big thing, the last big uh, display of that would have been, um, would I'm like the, Blockbuster. Blockbuster, yeah. Block, why would they want to change that? <laughs> Remember right. when we used to all go to the store and walk around their store for 30 minutes? Yeah, I
1: think we and, were clinging on to it as much as Blockbuster was, that experience of walking into the movie store.
0: Yeah, but they but they just could not, and I don't blame them. I mean, it must have been very hard for them. I, they just could not let go. Um, but yeah. You have to let go.
1: You do, and you have to have the energy for it. So that's like uh, one of my last questions for you, Pete. Is yeah, how do you sustain that energy? You've been doing this for a long time, and as we've yeah. been talking about, it requires a lot of keeping up with the times and research and just yeah. a- adapting. You know, how do you how do you stay in that creative space so consistently?
0: So as I get older, um, I have to start, I have to start letting go more and more and more. And that's what I, that's the mode I'm in now. I'm in let go mode. And, mm. and so a lot of the stuff, a lot of the th- activities of the company are slowly being taken over. Uh, we have a whole new generation of leadership coming up, um, you know, and, and they're taking over basically. Um, and, and, We have our navigators um, who are, you know, owning the technical aspects of the company. And that's the only way you're going to do it. It's no, Mm -hmm. if the company's relying on me, it's not going to have a very long future um, Mm -hmm. for what you, you know, because what you said is absolutely true. I mean, that is part of the scaling of the organization. Um, Yeah. Yep.
1: well, thank you, Pete. This has been such an illuminating conversation. I appreciate your time coming here today. Um, before you go, we always love to ask our guests this closing question and it's, what's your latest, most favorite high country moment? I, I,
0: I have a, I live in a, in a very special home. Someone else built it. I'd never could have built a home like this. And, um, it has like a forty-mile view, and that that moment happens almost every day because <laughs> it changes every day. And I have a different view because of the you know, the different weather conditions, and uh, so I think that was my most recent. Hike. I kind that just to be here, you know, the steelness and the super green summer we've had. Uh, I've never seen it this green before. And it's just uh, stunning. Uh, it's a stunning place to live. Uh, we live in a rainforest, basically. Um, so yeah, it's it's uh, that's that would be my my moment.
1: Thanks so much for listening to today's show. This episode was produced and edited by me, Samantha Wright, Community Director at Startup High Country. Learn more about our workshops, resources, and events at startuphc.com. If you have just 30 seconds free right now, please do us a solid and rate and review this podcast, then share it with a friend. It helps a lot with other people finding the show. Thank you so much. A special shout out to Matt Wasson for the creation of some of our program's music. Startup High Country is supported by NC Idea, a private foundation that supports entrepreneurship in North Carolina through grants and innovative programs. And thank you to the Watauga Economic Development Center for their support and for helping to build the entrepreneurial landscape of Western North Carolina. I'm Samantha Wright, and you've been listening to Made in the High Country. Thank you.